One of the interesting things about this pandemic is that it gave us, for the first time, the ability to look at a generally transmittable respiratory virus in the age of advanced genetic analysis, advanced laboratory analysis, and essentially watch it adapt to us and us adapt to it. And this has happened before. We have four previously circulating coronaviruses, which at some point emerged and adapted to the human population. But we certainly haven't had the ability to look at it and know what to expect in the age of such advanced laboratory testing. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Dr. Rekha Gustafson, the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Island and the former Medical Health Officer for the City of Vancouver. Dr. Gustafson updates COVID, the flu, and current immunization plans on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you take us through, Dr. Gustafson, what's been happening with COVID the past few months? I understand the numbers are starting to tick upwards the last few weeks. Yes, coronavirus now has been with us since January of 2020, and it is establishing its pattern in the human population. It doesn't have as clear a seasonal pattern as some of the other viruses that we're used to, were, such as influenza, but there are peaks and valleys in transmission. We've had low levels of transmission in the summer, which is pretty typical for respiratory viruses, and we've seen a little bit of an uptick in the number of diagnoses of COVID-19. You'll see some increases in what we call hospitalizations, but it is really important to know that those are not hospitalizations for COVID, they're hospitalization with COVID. In other words, a person goes to the hospital, they have respiratory symptoms. That may not be the reason they went into hospital, but because we don't routinely test for COVID in the community anymore, but we do more so in the hospital, we tend to pick it up more. What about suggested protocols and what measures would be in place to prevent spread of COVID this time of year? So I think what's really important is that the overwhelming majority of COVID transmission is happening in the community. And and you'll notice that among your friends, among your family. So it's not a primarily hospital transmitted infection. Some pathogens tend to be more transmitted in the hospital than in the community. So actually, the most important prevention measures we have in place are protocols, the immunizations. Immunization is the most effective way to reduce the severity of COVID infections. The measures we put in place to prevent transmission tend to be routine infection control measures. So really focusing on the people who have a respiratory symptom, and we don't actually wait for respiratory symptom to be diagnosed with one virus or another, we put measures in place to make sure that people with respiratory infections in the hospital have what we call droplet and contact precautions. Some additional measures have been announced by the government as well in anticipation of this respiratory season. Some of us now have five shots, maybe even six shots for COVID for vaccines. What are the differences between the various vaccines available? And are there still a number of vaccines available, or is what we're lining up for this fall made by one manufacturer to do one specific thing? Well, there are still a number of vaccines available, really the recommended vaccines for this fall, for which there are two manufacturers, actually more than two manufacturers, just the approval process varies a little bit, is targeting the variant that is closest to the currently circulating variant. So some things have changed. We used to refer to something called the primary series 
which is most of us who've been immunized for COVID will have had two shots of the original vaccines. And those are actually being phased out. And now primary series of COVID-19 is just going to be considered a single dose of the vaccine for this season. And that's probably the biggest change that's happening. And that is going to be the case for most people except the very young. And who should be considering getting a COVID booster shot this fall? So the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, which is our scientific advisory body for who should get a vaccination, and I think who have been really rigorous and nuanced recommenders of vaccine for us for many years, they recommend that vaccine should be offered to anybody who was six months of age who has not had either a COVID vaccine or an infection in the past six months. So that is the strongly recommended dose of people who are at higher risk of serious infection. And those are people over 65, those who live in long-term care facilities or in congregate settings, individuals with underlying medical conditions, people who are pregnant, people in First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities, and other, what we refer to as racialized and other equity-deserving communities, and people who provide essential community services. So the, the COVID vaccination is particularly important for these individuals, but available for anybody and recommended generally six months after your last infection or vaccine. And for folks who contract COVID, what are the suggestions for isolation or how long are they contagious for? Again, we are no longer recommending testing in general unless you are likely to be treated for COVID-19. Really, back to common sense about respiratory viruses. If you have a fever and you have a new cough, Stay at home if you can, um, but stay at home and certainly stay away from people who are vulnerable. If for some reason you have those symptoms and you need to go out, there may be some additional benefit for you to wear a mask. So really we have often focus on masks in general, but really we are more likely to have some benefit if a person who's symptomatic puts on a mask if they are near somebody who's more susceptible. But really we are back to treating COVID-19 as we treat other respiratory infections. And that's because we know that not everybody's going to have a diagnosis, that respiratory infections of all kinds can have significant consequences for people who are vulnerable. So using the approaches that are based on our symptoms rather than a COVID infection is what's most important. So really limit your contact with others when you are the sickest, when you have fever, you have a cough, until you feel better. Recognizing that's not always possible. You mentioned variants. What have we learned in terms of variants and surges? I know you and your colleagues keep a pretty close eye on what's happening now and will be over the fall and winter months. It's really interesting how these terms came to be during the pandemic. Variants are really describing what coronaviruses do, which is they're constantly evolving. And because we have the laboratory ability to look at the genetics of new variants, we can tell you and we can name new variants and tell you what's done. It's a really important piece of information for vaccine design because it allows us every year to target our vaccine against influenza, against strains that are most likely to be circulating. And now with COVID, we can also target our vaccine to the most recently circulating variant. So that's really the most important part about variants. It really doesn't affect what you and I do in our everyday lives apart from those who are designing vaccines for us. This past spring, British Columbia started keeping track of people who had contracted COVID multiple times, more than once. What do you hope those numbers will tell you? 
So I'm not actually very familiar with that particular body of research. I think what we are observing is that, and you're probably observing this in your community, is that people are getting COVID multiple times. And depending on their own exposure and the circulation of the virus. So I would say that, again, I'm not familiar specifically with the research, but what I could posit is that we're really looking at what is coronavirus going to look like in the population over time as it adapts to our population. How often can we expect to get it? Are we, is the time period between being infected going to expand over time? So I think those kind of things, looking at repeated infections, severity of infections is really allowing us to look at how a new virus like coronavirus adapts to the population over time. One of the interesting things about this pandemic is that it gave us, for the first time, the ability to look at a generally transmittable respiratory virus in the age of advanced genetic analysis, advanced laboratory analysis, and essentially watch it adapt to us and us adapt to it. And this has happened before. We have four previously circulating coronaviruses, which at some point emerged and adapted to the human population, but we certainly haven't had the ability to look at it and know what to expect in the age of such advanced laboratory testing. Last fall, we had a very busy flu and RSV season, which stretched emergency departments all over the province. What are you expecting for the cold and flu season this year? I started my career with Dr. John Blatherwick. I don't know if you remember Dr. John Blatherwick. And one of the things he taught me was that any medical health officer that predicts the influenza season should be immediately relieved of their duties because you can't. And so you really can't predict what it's going to be like. What we do know is that we have a very stressed healthcare system. And we know that every year, depending on the influenza season or the respiratory virus season, we get additional stress on our healthcare system. I can't predict exactly what the influenza season is going to look like or what the coronavirus season is going to look like. What I do know is what we're all of us are working on is ensuring that the system is resilient enough to manage these things. But you really can't tell ahead of time whether it's going to be earlier, it's going to be late, whether it's going to be severe or less severe. Coronavirus patterns, I think, are actually becoming quite evident. Again, the, the people I mentioned before as to who should get the vaccine are the people who are most likely to get more seriously ill. Influenza varies a little bit over time, and sometimes, while it also has recognized pattern of the elderly and the very young being affected, sometimes we have young adults more affected than other times, depending on previously circulating viruses. When Today in BC continues, Dr. Rekha Gustafson talks COVID-19 misconceptions and long-term effects. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Vaccine fatigue is a thing, according to a new report, which was conducted on behalf of the Canadian Pharmacists Association. And in BC, the numbers say that 42% of people surveyed say they'll get a flu shot. Last year it was 36, so that's up. But when it comes to getting the COVID-19 vaccine this fall, 55% say they probably will get a booster. So about half the population say they will not have the latest flu and COVID boosters this year. 
how do those numbers translate into what's happening with the population for flu and COVID? I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind about people's perceptions of vaccines. Vaccines are one of the safest and best preventive methods we have in the world. As an immigrant from Hungary, I'm very proud that this week I'm nearly being scientists shared the Nobel Prize for creating technology for mRNA vaccines. I think it's been an incredible accomplishment. We know that there are many things that impact vaccine fatigue or vaccine hesitancy, but I think it is really important to remember that vaccines are some of the safest and most effective interventions that we have in place. With respect to influenza vaccine, because it was around for so long, even has the nickname flu, I think people maybe underestimated both the importance and the effectiveness of such a vaccine. And so I, I do think that people who know that they're at increased risk and such serious illness tend to be more likely to get the vaccine. I think some young people don't appreciate that a bad bout of influenza can really have a significant impact on your health, on your life. Being out with a serious respiratory illness for five days or 10 days or two weeks can actually really impact how you are able to go to school, go to work, look after your family. And it's such a simple intervention. So I think it's too bad that people don't see it as important as it needs to be. I also appreciate that we've been talking about vaccines a lot. So I think where we need to go is really perhaps appreciate the fact that vaccines were required in many places over the last several years. That is bound to have a reaction. People have a different response to something that's required of them versus something that is recommended for them for their own benefit. I think it is important that we are clear about the recommendations, why we recommend it, and influenza vaccines and COVID vaccines are primarily for your benefit now. They are a benefit to you to prevent serious illness and in the case of influenza, also really prevent transmission to others, especially if you're in one of the high-risk professions where you are more likely to be around people who get influenza. But certainly a person who's, who has an elderly parent or a very young child, getting vaccinated against influenza is a really helpful way of protecting your loved ones. And for COVID-19 vaccination, it's a helpful way to avoid what can be a pretty nasty respiratory illness that you will wish you didn't have. Dr. Gustafson, we've been talking about COVID and it's been hanging around for three years and it's changed and it keeps changing. What are some of the common misconceptions about COVID that are still being talked about that might not necessarily be so? I think the biggest misconception is that it hasn't changed. I think we haven't actually communicated the change particularly effectively. And that can sometimes lead to debates about why are you doing this or why aren't you doing that? It is really important to appreciate how much we have changed and this virus has changed. One of the biggest things that have changed is that over 97% of us have pre-existing immunity to this virus, either from vaccination or from infection, and in most cases, both. So we have hybrid immunity. When we were facing this virus up to, I would say, middle of 2021, when the majority of people had the opportunity to have two doses of vaccine and therefore have that primary protection, up to that point, we were a very different population. We had universal susceptibility to a virus we had never seen. So I think one of the biggest things for us to 
appreciate is that we are very different than we were back then. And then the virus also changed quite profoundly. And that was really with the rise of the Omicron variant. In fact, it was the South African doctors telling us at that time that what they're seeing is really quite different. They are seeing a more transmissible virus that's causing less severe disease than previous strains of the virus. In that time, COVID-19 has evolved to be a virus that has a lot more typical pattern with a significantly higher or significantly more risk of serious illness among those folks who are generally at greater risk from serious respiratory illness from all viruses, from all coronaviruses that are spread influenza. What's interesting about COVID-19 is that unlike influenza, very young children don't appear to be at elevated risk, which is an interesting pattern that has emerged. So I think the biggest misconception that I still see is uh, maybe the lack of appreciation of how much things have changed. We can really now think of this virus as other viruses that circulate in our population, that some people need to pay particular attention to, and for which we have an effective vaccine that can reduce our likelihood of serious illness. What have been the biggest lessons learned from this pandemic so far? Is it still ongoing? It's interesting because we have criteria for declaring a pandemic. We don't actually have the criteria for declaring a pandemic over, which is an interesting. The definition of a pandemic is that it's a new virus. The entire population is susceptible and it causes serious illness and it's highly transmissible. Those are the triggers for declaring a pandemic. But because the virus that emerges as part of a pandemic and all pandemics that I'm aware of stuck around and become part of the circulating milieu of viruses, there's actually no criterion of declaring a pandemic over when you say it's not or still in it. So I'm not sure there's going to be a profound change from this season versus the next one versus the next one. So maybe that's another misconception that there's actually a declaration of it over. It is now an established human pathogen that is likely to behave the way it's behaving for many years to come. So I think that's a really big lesson. One of the biggest lessons that I can take away is how important it is for us to have a measured approach to risk. This was new. It had a name. We added numbers to the name. We called them variants. There were many things about the emergence of this virus that raises the alarm. And of course, it was an issue of very important significance. We had other really important things happening in our population at that time. The overdose crisis became much, much worse. The impact of climate change on us. Inequities increased enormously, all having significant impact on our health. A lot of care, a lot of connection was put on pause. A lot of education and development for young people was put on pause. All of these things have significant impact on our health. So I would, one of the things that I would say I learned from this is that when we talk about our pandemics, we talk about reducing serious illness. We talk about reducing hospitalizations. And we talk about reducing societal impacts of the pandemic. And one of the things that I've learned is that it's very hard in the face of something new to really focus on that really important last bit, a societal impacts of the pandemic. Dr. Rekha Gustafson has been our guest on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, 
iHeart YouTube and Google Podcasts. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com.